Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is Academy Award-winning film composer and session musician Joe Renzetti. But first of all, I don't know if you've heard, but you're probably struggling out there if you're a studio owner, if you play in a band, if you're an artist and you're not gigging, but you may be able to get some relief because there's brand new government funding and it does include all of the above. Now, as you may know, Congress approved what's known as the CARES Act and that was $350 billion worth of funding. It was gone in a flash. But thankfully, last week, they just approved another $484 billion and this is especially for not only small businesses but individuals as well. But you have to get going now before it runs out. Now, even if you got money before and that first round of funding, you can still reapply and you can still get another loan. Now, this time they have fairly relaxed loan requirements. There's no personal guarantee, there's no collateral, and you might not even need any credit history. You do have to document what the money is for though, In other words, you have to say, I've lost this amount of money, or I pay my musicians this amount of money, or the people in my studio. You have to document that, but everybody should know that anyway. So should you do that and you're approved, you may get a loan that's anywhere from 2.5 times a monthly payroll costs up to 39 weeks of assistance, and it doesn't stop until about $10 million if your company is big enough. The good part is about 75% of this loan doesn't need to be repaid. So even though this was originally intended to cover payroll, in fact, now it's different because individuals can also get money as well. This covers independent contractors and sole proprietors and the self-employed. If you work a day job or a part-time job, you're eligible as well. Now, you have to apply through commercial banks. The biggest ones will be the ones that will help you. And unfortunately, each one kind of has its own loan requirements, so there's no general advice on that. But you can go to the SBA, the Small Business Administration, and they can give you a lot of guidance if you need it before you apply. That being said, you can't procrastinate. You have to get on it right now if you want to get some of this funding. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. You can also sign up for my free vocal mixing techniques mini course at bobbyosinskicourses.com and download free ebooks and PDF downloads of mixing, production, mastering, and social media at bobbyosinski.com forward slash free hyphen resources. <laughs> Here's a bit of news that came sort of as a shock. Fender is no longer using ash in the bodies of their guitars. Now, if you're not a guitar player, this might not mean much, but let's face it, most of us play guitar, or at least we try. Even if you don't much care about this, you should at least care about the ramifications. So ash has been used by Fender pretty much from the beginning. All Fender guitars between 1950 and 1956 were ash. 
But it wasn't for any particular reason other than it was cheap and it was available. The only thing that ash was used for at the time was baseball bats. Essentially what would happen is ash was treated as a weed. It was cut down and burned. Now that's not the problem these days. The big problem is what's known as the emerald ash borer beetle. It's actually contaminating trees and that's causing them to go bad. We've seen this with other trees as well as a matter of fact, I lost a bunch of trees in my backyard from a similar beetle maybe 10 years ago. So this has been going on for a while. But it's not all ash that was used. Fender only used what's known as swamp ash. This is only available in the south part of the United States. And it's actually the ash tree that's been underwater in a swamp. And the only part of the tree that they use is the part that was underwater. That's because the water was actually a very desirable part of the wood. Fenders since tried other types of ash, but for the most part it's heavier, so they've chambered it and they've tried all sorts of other things, but generally speaking, they decided to move on. Most of the guitars already use alder, which is a very fast-growing wood, but they're also looking at roasted pine and sassafras, both of which have a similar grain to ash. We've already seen scarcity happen in other woods as well. For instance, Rosewood. We used to get all of our rosewood imported from various parts of the world, and even though the restrictions have been loosened, still hard to get. And Sitka Spruce, which everyone felt was the best-sounding acoustic guitar top. And you can't get that anymore either. It's growing just fine in upstate New York, but it's an endangered species, so it can't be used. So if you want to buy a new Fender guitar, you have to have ash. Best to get it now. There's still some stock available. Fender has some wood that they're holding onto that's probably going to go to custom shop items. So it doesn't mean you won't be able to get these. It just means you'll have to pay a premium price. My guest today is Joe Renzetti, who started in the studio band of the Cameo Parkway label in Philadelphia, playing on hits like Let's Twist Again, South Street, Palisades Park, and Limbo Rock. He then moved to New York, where he worked as an arranger on huge hits like Sonny by Bobby Hebb and Barry Manilow's breakout hit, Mandy. After a move west, Joe immediately found success in Hollywood, winning an Academy Award for the Buddy Holly story and scoring a wide variety of films and television shows. He won accolades for his scores on horror films like Dead and Buried, Poltergeist 3, and Child's Play, among many others. During the interview, we spoke about being in the wrecking crew of Philadelphia, recording in mono, arrangers as mixers, making the transition from session musician to composer, and much more. I spoke with Joe via phone from his home in rural Pennsylvania. Joe, tell me how you got started. Uh, how I got started was, uh, by, you know, very common story. I was 10 years old. I went to my my uncle's wedding with my father and there was a band on stage like they used to have in those days. And there was a guitar player and I just, it was just magic. I said, I want to do that. And in fact I did started when I was about 11 and became a pretty good guitar player by the age 16. I was playing jazz and playing club gigs and, you know, jamming with other jazz musicians around Philly. So that was my basic start. Okay, so when did it become serious for you? Well, um, 
I started to, when I first, I, I was, uh, you know, my, my first love was jazz and then a little bit into classical music. And I didn't like rock and roll of the day because it was doo-wop. And from a musical standpoint, it was, you know, it was kind of silly and it was out of tune, you know, and it was four chords. I, I wasn't, I didn't hate it, but I wasn't a big lover of rock. But then it started to get better. I started to hear stuff. And um, I, like I said, I was a pretty decent guitar player. I could read music and all that stuff. I was well-trained. And uh, I was in a band, and we used to get our tuxedos. This is in Philadelphia, in the really early 60s, maybe even late 50s, 58, 59, somewhere in there. There was a place on South Street <clears throat> called Benny Crass, and they used to, Crass, and they used to he used to sell suits for bands. You could buy, you know, you could buy a, a silk, uh, shark, silk, shark uh, skin tuxedo for like forty dollars. You know, and all the bands would go there. Well, there was this well-known band around the, in the area uh, called Dave Apple and the Applejacks, and. Dave Apple became the head arranger, producer, writer at Cameo Records, which was very well connected into Dick Clark and that whole dance scene that was happening. And Dick and Dave uh, shopped at this place, asked just off the cuff, he asked the, um, one of the sales guys if he knew any of any guitar players, and he happened to know me. He mentioned my name. Dave Apple called me. I did a session, and he said, great you're on so i became sort of the it was sort of like the wrecking crew of philly in those days a little team of players and um because dave was so busy or he you know after they had the twist chubby checker uh he was he just couldn't handle engineer he actually engineered he actually arranged played guitar uh edited uh produced and wrote he, he just he just had to start farming stuff out and he uh, tapped me, so here we go. Do you remember that first session? I do. Yes, it was something called Cartoons. I don't know if it ever came out or if it did come out. It was uh, not a big hit. It was like a, um, you know, sort of like a Bobby Rydell-ish kind of song, you know, of that day. It wasn't Bobby, but it was that. And I just remember it was really good because I had I'd had played on sessions, and I'm doing air quotes, and they sounded junky. You know, the, the studios weren't up-to-date, cutting-edge. But this was. And when I heard the playback, I said, wow, this guy really knows what he's doing. So I was very impressed with that. And then, um, uh, I, I, you know, I was 20. I was doing maybe two, three sessions a week at $45 a session, living at home. <laughs> Pretty sweet. Yeah. You played on a lot of big hits of the day that were coming out, and I was amazed when I looked at your discography. South Street, Palisades Park, Let's Twist Again, things, and Bristol Stomp, all those songs that I remember vividly when I was growing up. Well, uh, it was based, it was all because of broadcast and technology. First of all, you know, I, I always remind people that Music doesn't happen just as abstract music. It also happens because of technology and distribution. The 45 had just been invented 
you know, mid fifties, uh, yeah, about mid mid fifties. And uh, Dick Clark had a dance show, which was unique, and it, it went national. So that when and he was a businessman, he would network with different other record producers, and so you know, quite honestly, if he, if he liked your record, he would play it, and uh, you know, it was national broadcast. It was ABC Nat, Nation National. So um, you know, we had this little niche of of little funky records. We did it in a studio. I swear, was maybe forty by twenty. And uh, just mono Ampexes, all tech mixers, and uh, you know it was a very successful operation. And I just happened to be there right at the crest, so we just knocked them out. You know? I'm curious, what kind of gear were you using for those sessions? Yeah, well, the guitar. I, I um, basically because I was a jazz head, jazz bow. Uh, I had a Gibson L5, which is, you know, an arch-top jazz guitar with a DeArmond pickup. And, but what happened, what was nice with Dave Apple, he was, he was really uh, a great guitar player himself. And he would have, around the studio, he had, you know, a Fender, uh, Les Paul or whatever, you know, bass guitar, which you seldom hear anymore, and an assortment of acoustic guitars. So depending on the song or the groove or the feel or the genre, you know, I would, I would switch with that, with his guitars, the house guitars, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And, uh, for example, I played on uh, limbo rock and that was, um, we used, I used a, uh, acoustic because it was sort of that, you know, that natural feeling. And the recording was all, uh, I, I think they had two mono decks because, uh, you'd have to go mono to mono and overdub. We would do the tracks, five, six of them people at most. No horns, no singers. Just do the track, and then they'd go home. We'd go home, the musicians, and they'd bring in maybe a um, uh, sax player like Buddy Savage who would play you know, the sax solo. So that was one, one generation. And then the, the vocals, the singers would come in, and uh, they would be second generation. That was about it. Anymore, it was really, really getting dicey. Occasionally, we were forced into a fourth generation, third, fourth, whatever generation. But mostly it was, uh, you know, you had to do it on the fly. I don't even know if they even had, I'm trying to think if uh, there was noise reduction in those days. I Sure, there was. Yeah, I think that was that was before noise reduction. What amplifier were you using? My amplifier. Yeah. Oh well, the the Fender, the Fender that the Tweed series, whatever they're called, Pros, Fender Pros. Yeah. That was that was the the amp of choice. Okay. For, the, for us guitar guys, and then bass was a that double, uh, big blue box with the big head on top. I think it was very. I don't remember the name. Oh, an Ampeg. Yeah, the Ampeg. That's yeah. it. And uh, Joe Macko was the he was he, he was playing uh, electric bass, which was a disruptor in those days because everybody was using double bass, upright bass. So he Joe was great. He could read anything. He wasn't funky like uh, what's his name Jamie from uh, Motown, but he could play. He could read anything. It was just astounding. So we got a good little feel, you know, we drummers and, you know, Bobby Gregg, Joe Shear, 
for sure. And uh, so we, we would, we'd always get a groove that was nice, you know, and then um, mano to mano. Then it seemed like it, the whole senior in ran its course and you moved to New York, right? Uh, yes. Uh, yes. In, in general, that's, yes, that's the broad stroke. Uh, basically what happened was, uh, well, you had the, the Beatle invasion that really put a kibosh on, you know, changed the music scene, the, the pop music scene. Uh, what happened though was, um, uh, Dick Clark, you know, uh, again, it was pre payola. It was not, it was frowned upon payola. But it wasn't illegal. But then what happened was Congress got a hold of it, and there was the hearings, and they brought up Dick, and he sort of put an end to that because the fact became illegal. So that kind of killed the edge that the local record companies had here, Swan Records, who had some of the Beatles releases, um, Chancellor, which had Bob, uh, Frankie Avalon, Venus, that was Chancellor. Uh, so they kind of killed that era, you know. So eventually what happened was Bernie Lowe, who owned Cameo Records, he decided to sell and uh, get out of it, and he sold to um, the guy who broke, quote-unquote, broke up the Beatles. can't think of his name right now. Alan Klein. Thank you. Alan Klein. He sold to, Bernie sold to Alan Klein, who for one, I don't know what reason, just put a just put everything in a vault for 20 years. There was no re-releases. It was like nothing. I don't, I don't understand his thinking. But that was the end of, that sort of put an end to, uh, to Cameo. And I had started to move out anyway, because I was, you know, I was interested in getting out of Philly and getting into more, quote unquote, professional scenes, New York City. And then eventually I, I knew I wanted to get to LA. That was basically why Cameo and that whole Philadelphia, uh, that era ended. And, of course, right after that, shortly, the Huff and Gamble started with their scene. That it was a whole other story, which I was involved in, too. Oh, you were? I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Sure. Yes. Yeah, well, the, you've heard of Sigma Sound, right? Joe Tarsi? Sure. Yeah, well, that was the second iteration of that building, that studio. It had owned. It was owned by a. Now, now we're into recording studio history. Um, previously, from maybe sixty on, it was owned by a man named Emil Corson. It was called Reco Art, and we would record a lot of the, the cameo stuff there too because it was a really clean room. In fact, I have a theory. This is my theory that Emil Corson, somewhere along the line, teamed up or met Rudy Van Gelder. Mm. and learned his techniques because Emil, <laughs> if he, well, let me give you an idea. One time Freddie Cannon was there doing a voiceover and he touched the microphone and Emil said, do not touch the microphone. And of course, Freddie Cannon's, well, you know, I'll touch it if I want. He touched it again, threw him out. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> out. Everybody's out. So that was Emil Corson's and it, his, his music, his stuff. He was mono too. Um, impeccable. I mean, you could hear the bass. It was clean. Everything was isolated. Just one, just the sharpest studio I ever heard for that era. Well, that later became Sigma Sound. Emil, for various reasons, got out of it, and uh, Joe Tarsia took it over. And because 
Huff and Gamble had started. And my, my thing with Huff and Gamble, I was literally probably their first or one of the first arrangers for them. So we would, you know, we would meet and, and uh, they were both geniuses, Huff and, and Kenny. Kenny could sing and, and, and create parts in his head. Vocal parts, excellent, excellent. And uh, string parts, and uh, well, he would sing the lines. I would then take them and orchestrate them or embellish them into those uh, the sounds of Philadelphia. Uh, I did the Intruders together and United. I did those. I arranged those. And then, but then, I, I, it, you know, it wasn't my music. I wanted to be a composer. I wanted to do my own thing, as most of us do. So I, as soon as I could, I was working with other producers, and I had, I had with Jerry Ross out of Philly, we did a little record called Sonny by yeah. Bobby Hebb. Yeah. Bell sound, one take, and it was a, a big hit. So I, it, it allowed me to get out of Philly and become an arranger. I didn't let it be known that I was a guitar player. I wanted to come in as an arranger, so that's what I did. And uh, I did a lot of set. I must have done... As an arranger, I think I calculated some calculated somewhere between three and four hundred records, or you know, over the years. Uh, Mandy, um, ninety-eight point six. Uh, some of the Spanky and our gang, on and on and on, and that sort of got me to L.A. Well, before we get to L.A., because there's a lot I want to talk to you about. That I'm curious about the sessions that you were an arranger for. Did you know in advance, were you able to come up with the parts in advance, or was this just all on the fly? Oh, no, no. It was the day when I was the, I was the, I was Pro Tools. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I would, in other words, you needed an arranger to write drum parts, bass parts, string parts. Now, you know, depending on the type of music, you know, some, some of the music had to be written note for note. Like a lot of times I would write the bass line out note for note and, and the drums, you know, you just suggest a hit here or a kick or a fill, you know, but then the horns, oh no, everything was pre-written yeah, from the imagination because you didn't have the time to walk into a studio. It just wasn't done. Nashville did it. You would uh, still do in Nashville. Those guys are so good. You just hand them a lead sheet, you know, with the chord changes, that's it. And count it off. And they just, they're amazing. Yeah. So that was more of the Nashville country, you know. But up here, we were doing pop records, uh, you know, R&B-ish influenced records. Uh, think uh, Valley, you know, um, Four, uh, yeah. Four Seasons, was that? Yeah, oh, Four yeah. Seasons. And so that was our, the New York, the New York scene in those days was more, um, it was like many, wrecking crews. There were two or three groups of players, but, uh, no, the, one of the things that was great as an, as an arranger is, is that I knew from, you know, just doing it back in Philly and, uh, you know, cutting out a lot of the background cause it's, you know, time consuming, but, uh, you know, I, I learned to write for strings and horns. I was a real musician in that sense. So, um, it was, it was a different procedure in those days. Not to, not to say that the musicians didn't have, a, you know, an input. They certainly did. They, they would throw stuff in. Hey, what do you think? Or they just play it and you go, yeah, I love that. Keep that in. 
Mm. You know. Yeah, but see, one of the great things from that era that I miss is the fact that there were arrangers that put everything together in such a way where it was easy to mix because all the frequencies were balanced and everything was there the way it should be. And now it's kind of like, well, let's throw more parts on. Oh, I have an idea for another part, another part. And they're all fighting one another. So then it takes, you know, a super amount of time to mix it and just kind of figure out what should be there and what shouldn't and making it all fit. Great point. Great point. Entree to studying because I was self-taught. I never went to college for it. I tried, but they didn't accept guitar in those days. Was the Henry Mancini Sounds and Scores which not only did he have a book where you could look at the notes and the transposition and the ranges, but he also had a vinyl LP that you could play, you know, and watch the score go by. Well, that was such an eye opener because I could, I understood the musicalness and, and, but I didn't know how to, to put it together. And to go to your point, composers going back to Beethoven were the first mixers. If you think about it. Yeah. You know, when when you write, if you're studying legitimate uh, orchestration for orchestra, you you know these things. You know, you don't, you can't have a solo flute and then have a whole brass choir, you know, double forte playing. Well, because you, it, it, the, the flute's drowned out. So you would have to, that's where the terms, you know, forte, piano, 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 piano. That's what they come. We were mixing so that when it, it was played down, it mixed itself in a way, you know, in a sense. So that's what you're feeling. And yes, today, because uh, I, you know, by the way, I'm, I'm way up on everything that's happening right now. I have all the love samples. I love digital. I love uh, all the plugins and listening to some of your stuff. I've learned some good tricks. <laughs> <laughs> because, I, when, you know, all through my career, I never really, I knew what compression was. I knew how it worked, but I never got deep into it, you know, so now I come back to it and go, Oh, I see. Okay. Double compress. Oh, that's interesting. You know, it's, it's, I love all that stuff. So my point is that I'm, I have one foot in the future and one foot in the past. Okay. Speaking of which, so you're in New York, you're arranging, you're orchestrating, but you have your eye on Los Angeles. What pushed you over the edge to go there? Well, it's sort of what happened with Philly. In other words, I was, I was actually getting tired of doing records because, you know, like I said, I would do two, three sessions a week sometimes. Phil Ramone, A&R, great studio on, on um, East Avenue, Broadway. And I was just getting tired of that. Uh, worked with uh, Tony Bon Jovi, you know, just this is for your engineering guys and gals. I was just starting to get tired, and fortunately... I got a call from um, Clive Davis, Ronnie Dante, to do a, uh, a, a chart, some charts for this new guy who I had heard, I have heard of, Barry Manilow, because he was an arranger around town also. And they were doing a session, and they brought me in for a meeting, and they said, we're, we're doing this song. It's called Brandy right now, and it's a little bubblegummy, but we want to do it bridge over the trouble, over trouble waters. And I, I got it. You know, Clive Davis is a, is a record genius. To imagine that, I could have never foreseen that. And uh, I said, yeah, well, I need 24 strings. And they said, you got it. And we went up to um, Media Sound or, yeah, Media Sound on 57th, yeah. Old Church. Uh, we, we recorded it, uh, Mike the Lug, engineer. And um, it was a big hit. And I said, this is my ticket out of um, 
uh, you know, New York into L.A. Because now I come into L.A. as a hit arranger with Mandy. And um, it's a nice entree. So I worked, I started working a lot. Were you working as an arranger when you first got to L.A.? Or did you start in on film scores? No, I, I, I started as an arranger. Uh, yeah, I was still in the records. But because I was in that town and I had known some some guys from Philly, actually, who from the record business who were in L.A. and they were they were in the music. Now they wanted to get in the film business because they had some of that background. Uh, and they came up with this idea of doing the Buddy Holly story. And I was their man because I was right there and they knew me and I knew that scene. And that was my first. I mean, I'd, I'd worked with film. I did a lot of um, commercials, but I never did. This was my first film. And um, so they hired me, and it's, that, it was perfect because, um, you know, we did that. Was, now, that, uh, from a, an engineering standpoint, very interesting. Uh, that was Joel Fine. He was out of Philly. That film was no, nominated for three awards, by the way. Yes. Joel Fine Sound. But he... Uh, Gary Busey as Buddy Holly, actor. Me as what they call adaptation score. So, um, yeah, I came in, it was a heavy film. And um, that hit, and now all of a sudden, um, all of a sudden I'm a big film composer. And uh, had a career in that. Okay, so on the Buddy Holly story, you taught the actors to play. Yes. What was that like? Well, uh it hadn't been done to then. Yes, they would have occasionally back in the days, and then maybe going back to the 50s, you would have a singer, oh, maybe sing live. I don't even think so. It was all, it was all pre-recorded to playback, you know, lip syncing. And we decided to get the energy, to get that natural thing. Let's do something that's a little dangerous. Let's have the actors who were cast Three, the three main guys, Gary, the drummer, Don Stroud, and uh, Charlie Martin Smith played bass. Let's actually have them play <laughs> live on camera and sing live on camera as they're doing, they're in, in the character, in character at a roller rink or the Ed Sullivan Theater. So that was the first. And it, it was, I must say, it was groundbreaking. In fact, Henry Mancini came up to me one day and said, how did you do that, Joe? He's a guy I studied with in my basement in Overbrook, Philadelphia. And he's asking me how I did that. Mm. So he did. So we actually, we had a, of course, by then we was 24 track. We had a truck outside with a Jenny and, you know, we had a couple of engineers, miles of cables and mics all over the place. And I would, but to, to get to your point about teaching, we decided, um, that's when I say we, the, the director, uh, producer, writers. We decided that I would take the three actors and rehearse them on only the Buddy Holly songs we were going to do with very specific arrangements. There are only going to be two minutes, a minute and a half, because three minutes on camera is, is deadly. So uh, we took, I forget how many songs, six songs, and uh, almost three months, maybe two, month and a half, something. We, every day, except weekends, we, we'd rehearse nine to five. Okay, <laughs> that'll be the day. One more time. Here we go. One, two, and we'd play. And then they'd, I'd say, no, this bass player used this position, and the drummer played this and played that. 
and they just came together. They worked really hard, and um, we it's and we had a go or no go date. I'll never forget. And all the brass came in, and I said, "Here we go, count it off." And I would play off camera just to give them a little support, you know, mm-hmm. a little confidence. And uh, it worked. They, you know, and we went on camera and did it. Had if somebody asked me to do that today, I'd, well, I'd probably say yeah. But it, it's you know, it was it was kind of chancy because. If you got on camera and you have a crew with all that money running and the clock running, you know, and the singers and the actors can't cut it, you got a problem. Yeah. But we we had a backup. We did record some stuff just in case, but we never used it. Now, with all that said, we did in post, you know, maybe Gary flubbed up a guitar chord and I think we over, we doubled him up and. Uh, I think the bass player, I don't think he missed more than four or five notes that we just punched in. And uh, Don Stroud, the drummer, I, uh, maybe he missed a backbeat here or there that we dropped in. But other than that, you're you're hearing 99% of those guys playing live. Wow. Which was, as I said, was now it's it's been taken further, you know, with Les Miserables. They, do the, they have an earpiece, they hide the earpiece, and they have a pianist off camera. And they're singing live on camera, and he's playing. And then they, you know, they will they'll develop a click track to that because it's, you know, fairly wavy as far as tempo. And then they um, they overdub the whole orchestra. It was great, great stuff. Hmm. So the Buddy Holly story then was a jump-off point for more work in Hollywood. Yes. Where did you go from there? Was it mostly film, or I saw you did a lot of television as well? Yeah, that's right. Both. I did. <clears throat> I did film, other films, and and a strange twist. As I even before I got the uh, Oscars, I met up with a director by the name of Gary Sherman, and uh, not to be confused with the arranger from New York. And Gary, um, we just hit it off. He was he used to do records in Chicago, and he we hit it off. And he said, "I'm doing this really weird thing with these uh, mis." Mysterious too. This couple that are into a cult, and they have uh, da, 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 and all, you know all these different things. Very, very sci-fi slash horror. He says, "Could you do that?" And I said, "Yeah, I could do that." Because I love far out, you know, because of my classical love. I I got into all the the far out dudes, you know, Ligeties and Anton uh, Berg and oh, Stravinsky. I, Ives and you know I love all that far out stuff. Well, that's great horror film because it's all dissonance and and so I did it and he loved it and then I you know that led to in other words my career split because then Ron Howard knew that I did Polly so he hired me to do some things called Cotton Candy which was his first TV venture as a uh, director so I went that direction I want and from that I I did Elvis with Dick Clark. But on the on the horror side, I got to well, it was a little few years later, but I got to do Child's Play, the original, and that was a big hit. So I became a horror person, Poltergeist Three, you know. So uh, my career was going two different ways at the same time, which was great. So and then yeah, TV shows, um, Missing Persons, Chicago, Anne Bancroft, Mel Brooks. For some reason, they liked well, she wanted to do an Italian American film called Fatso with Tom DeLuise and uh, she wanted a real Italian American. Uh, hello. Um, 
I qualify. And we hit it off, and I wrote the score for that. So it was, it was great. It was doing, you know, which I see, that's why to this day, what I like to do is somebody say, hey, can you do, uh, you know, um, African um, flute, nose flute music? Yeah, sure. I'll check it out <laughs> and get into it. And that's what I, I like to do, you know, challenges. Can you do, uh, you know, EDM? Yes. Let me, sure. I can get there. So that's and that's what I liked about film music compared to, say, records. It's just more, you know, one day. Well, you, you know, as an engineer, one day you're mixing a, a garage band, and next week you're mixing a symphony orchestra. Hmm. You know, it's the same thing. That's what I like about it. Hypothetical. Now, I know you embrace technology, so you understand the way everything is recorded today as compared to, to way back when you started. So... That being said, where do you feel that both film and music is going as a result? Well, you know, I understand and appreciate there's a whole group of of people. Let's talk just for for the second uh, about recording engineering or, or recording uh, who are in love with, you know, the analog oh, and tape and oh, the old tube compressors. I understand that. I appreciate I was there when pull text were pulled out and, uh, you know, whatever's were, uh, but, you know, you also got tired of hearing, well, I can't, like, I remember Bon Jovi, we had this argument because I said, give me that cymbal crash way loud up front in your face. Said, well, you can't really do it because it'll break up. The, and then when you go to uh, master it in, in, in plastic and, you know, it'll crack this walls. Oh, I got tired. I don't want to hear that anymore. I love digital because you could push the hell out of it. You can't distort it. You, it's it's just great. So, I you know I'm again I I love the old stuff, but I love the new stuff. And I think what I hear today in films and in records is just astounding in quality and in in, in clarity and everything. As a guitar player, because you still play, I do. What's your take on guitar today as compared to when you first started? Well, uh, it's way better. It's way more advanced because of what you can hear. Like a 20-year-old today could hear, uh, you know, almost 100 years of the, tr- the, tr- the path of the guitar from, you know, uh, Django Reinhardt uh, um, and... Eddie Lang, who many people probably don't know, or Tal Farlow, Barney Kessel, then comes the the people with the the grunge, you know, the, the distortion. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. Do you want to hear my uh, Roy Buchanan story? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So I'll make it quick. It's, I know we're it's off the path, but anyway, Roy, I get the session in Philly, and there's Dave Apple again is bringing in this new kid from the South, and because he plays this wild electric stuff and funky bluesy. Anyway, he shows up this Roy Buchanan, who's very unfriendly, very monotonal. I mean, not, not mean, he's just, you know, very quiet kind of guy. And I'm watching out of my corner, corner of my eye as he sets up the guitar. And what he does takes a cord out of, of the amp, puts it into a brown paper bag. I kid you not. And he screws around with it, takes another cord in the brown paper bag, screws around with it, out back to the guitar. <laughs> and then he starts playing. <laughs> and it sounds like... <laughs> and I'm going, what the hell is this? 
And it just, and I, in fact, that was the day I said, you know what? I can't do this. It's not my thing, first of all. And then I said, I don't want to be a guitar player. But so uh, it's, it's amazing. I, you know, I'm not one of those, I might be contrary to a lot of older timers that to me, there's, there's no right music and wrong music. It's just your music. That's your music. Fine. This is my music. And we respect each other. So consequently, when I hear uh, some of these players today, are, they're fabulous. Again, because and it's not a put down, it's because they have the, the, the knowledge of everything that's gone before them. You know? Yes. I mean, I hear you see kids on, on YouTube that are playing, you know, wow, fast, clean, with feeling, and um, some really, you know, and they're in high school, you know, so it's, it's just compressed so to speak, the, the knowledge, the experience that said, there's nothing like somebody who's been playing as they say for 10,000 hours, you know, that, that theory, sure. To become a master is 10,000. There's nothing like that. Uh, you could tell the difference between, I can tell the difference between a, a hotshot young dude or dudette who can play, you know, crazy stuff, but they just don't have the, I don't know how to explain. You might want to use the word soul experience, the life experience. It's just not in the, in their playing yet. Some get it. Some never get it. A lot has to do with gigging and the lack of it. Yes. Very well put. Yes, that's right. Nothing like experience. Yeah. Last question, Joe, what's the best piece of business advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or you learned along the way? Yeah, I would say uh, in the beginning, do everything. Just do it. You know, can you, uh, I could speak most confidently about arranging. Like somebody would come to me and say, um, Hey, you know, Joe, this, I, there's this Motown record. They have strings, you know, string violins. You know what that is? And I'll go, Oh yeah, sure. I would, I never met one. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, well, listen, I want to do a session. You think come over and we'll talk about it. And then could you write that? Yes, of course. And then go home and study for three days in a row without sleep how to write for violins. Show up, uh, take a tranquilizer and relax, and uh, hope for the best. That's my only, is just do it. If somebody says, uh, you know, just do everything you can. And then the other thing is when you do get some uh, chops and get some recognition, don't sell yourself short. I do feel today composers and, and people who are writing music or, you know, they're, it's like they're, for example, they're playing to play. Ah, don't do that. So, you know what I'm saying? That's demeaning our art and our experience. You can find out more about Joe at joerenzetti.net. That's Joe Renzetti, all one word, J-O-E-R-E-N-Z-E-T-T-I, joerenzetti.net. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyoinnercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyoinnercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyoinnercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-in form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time.